Can I get your attention? Welcome to ENC Seaside 2023. Okay, I want to introduce our speaker. So, Anna Mason, do you want to come and join me? Let's hear it for Anna. So, if you've been part of Exeter Neighbourhood Church for longer than eight years, you will remember Anna because Anna. Uh, led our youth and, uh, and and student and kids as well. And student yeah, kids you got as me well. Working hard. Yeah, you were working very hard. And then you went to London. <laughs> now, Anna, you are living in Newquay up I the live road. In Newquay, literally ten minutes that way. This is my home. Welcome home. So, uh, Anna, what have you, you been up to in Newquay <coughs> just recently, and what's happening? Yeah. So. Um, uh, basically, I mean, I won't give you my whole life story, but when I was 18, I became a Christian um, in my bedroom um, when I was living down in Cornwall, living down just outside Truro, had an encounter with the Spirit, and um, ended up basically, um, well, following Jesus, didn't I? Um, but when I, when I left K uh, ENC, I remember driving out of, um, of Exeter, my car, my little K um, car was full to the brim. I was crying my eyes out. And I felt God say, you're going into exile, but I'll bring you back to the promised land. I was like, kill them. So basically, the summary of the last eight years is I've been trying to get back here. Um, but um, there's just been some amazing moments of, of, of God calling me. Um, so I had a sense of like he was calling me back to my spiritual home. Um, and there were just a few moments, and I'll just tell you one of them. Um, I had been thinking about going for like a parish job, like a traditional kind of church job, because I thought someone coming from London down to Cornwall, if anyone knows anything about Cornwall, they don't like outsiders. So I thought, okay, maybe I'll just like come and take on something that's already existing rather than like start something new coming in from London, like we're here to save you. Um, but um, I, I, I had kind of on the journey, I was like, actually, I don't think, I think I'm meant to start a new church. I think I'm meant to do something new. And I, I phoned Pete James. Some of you will know Pete James. I was like, so Pete, I think I'm meant to, to start a church. And he said, oh, what do you call it? I was like, I think I'd call it St. Gregory's. Anyway, next day I went to see my boss. And I said, Pete, I think, uh, another Pete, very confusing. And I said to him, I was like, Pete, I think I'm meant to, to start a church. I think I'm meant to start a church in Cornwall. And he was like, oh, finally. He was like, six months to a year ago, we were sat in a meeting, and God said to me, in September 22, Anna's going to start a church. It's going to be into North Cornwall. It's going to be called St. Gregory's. And I was like, dude, you could have told me. I mean, there's been a lot of heartache in those last six months. Um, but like, yeah, it's been amazing. We've seen like miracle provision already. Like two weeks before I left my job, it still wasn't confirmed with the Church of England. And I was looking to leave the Church of England. But amazingly, all the vicars, all the clergy voted for it and said, yes, we want this, which is amazing, which is a miracle. If anyone knows anything about Church of England, um, and then like two two days before I moved down, I didn't have a house. I had a van booked, but um, didn't know where I was gonna whether where where the van was gonna end up. Um, but that came through as well two days before I moved down. So, just seen amazing provision financially as well. And um, the people that he's brought um, didn't take anyone from London. No one came with me. Um, but he he brought a team of about eighteen people around me over the last six months, and we launch next Sunday. And John is one of my trustees. So it's really wonderful to have you here. Uh, thanks for having us here in your town. So uh, we're going to pray for Anna, and then she's going to speak. And uh, so, Father, thank you for bringing Anna uh, to Newquay. We thank you, Lord, that she's with us for this weekend. And Heavenly Father, I pray that you would uh, use her to speak into our hearts and minds, Lord, and give us hearts and minds that are ready to be obedient to you. 
Thank you that you're amongst us. We pray that you would move in power in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Um, before I get into the talk, I just want to have a little boast. I met Alice just a minute ago, and she thought I was a student. <laughs> I was like, dude, I turn, I turn 36 next month, and, um, you know, still got it. Thank you. <laughs> the great thing about planting church as a woman and a, someone who looks like they're in their 20s is that no one expects much of you, so, you know, great. Um, so, that was a joke. You're allowed to laugh. Um, it, is, it is really, really wonderful to be here. I can't tell you how good it is to be at home with you guys. Um, there, there's this opening bit in, in Philippians which we're going to be looking at, and it says, um, I thank God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for you all. And I thank God for this church, honestly. I am so grateful for my four years here. When I arrived um, at Exeter Network Church, honestly, I thought, I was like, this is the, tr the church I've been dreaming about. Like, this is, I've never known, and I still haven't found a church like you. Um, it is an amazing place. If you are new, I encourage you, throw yourself all into this community, because this is a community of grace. I learned grace like I just, I never knew when I was here. And I've never known a church that so relentlessly exists for the sake of other people. So I just want to say um, thank you. It's an honor to be here today. Keep being yourselves, because what you carry is something unique and special, and it's something that actually the church needs. Um, so just keep being you. Keep being um, ENC in all your quirks, in all your wonderful ways. I absolutely love these guys to pieces. Um, so I, you know, I, I feel like I'm going to be stealing a lot of basically what this church carries um, for St. Gregory's in the future. Um, so we are going to be looking at the book of Philippians this weekend, and I encourage you over the weekend just to have some time, take some time to read it. Um, it's, it's a chapter, it's only four chapters. Um, it should take, if, if you're not dyslexic like me, it should take 15 minutes. If you're dyslexic like me, it takes a little bit longer. Um, if you are dyslexic, I encourage you to download a free um, app called the Bible app, because it can actually read out to you. You have to get over the fact it's an American accent. Not that there's anything wrong with Americans. I heard American accent earlier. Um, but it's the way. It's kind of like a computerized American accent. Sorry. Um, way to make friends, Anna. <coughs> anyway, um, ba basically, part of the, the, the good thing about, um, about reading it is we're not going to go, you'll be thankful to know, we're not going to be going line by line through the book of Philippians. We're just going to be looking at some chunks, some different themes as we go. So it'd be helpful as I'm kind of dipping into bits that you know the wider context. So I encourage you to just have a, a little read with it over the time. Um, but tonight what we're going to be doing is we're going to just look at some foundations. We'll just go through some of the real basics about this book um, just understanding a little bit more about it. But before I do that, I just want to say kind of why I chose this book. Um, first of all, one of the reasons I chose this book is I, I love Philippians because no one's getting told off. Like if you've read any of Paul's letters, there's quite often people getting told off in the books. And I mean, I, I actually secretly love that moment when you get caught in the middle of an argument and you get caught in the middle of a marital. It's like unbelievably awkward, but also very enjoyable. And when I see a kid getting told off, I am the person there who's trying not to laugh because it is funny when they show you their food in their mouth. But anyway, in lots of Paul's letters, he's, he's going on at them all the time because they are a pain in his backside. He's having to say to them, like, do you know what? It's probably not good to sleep with your father's wife. That's probably crossing some kind of li line. Um, but in this book, he's like, 
oh, you are doing a fantastic job. You are incredible. I love you so much. It's a book of deep, deep affection. It just, and that really comes across. It's a book of joy. It's happy. It's full of thankfulness. It's full of encouragement. It's full of good advice. That's number one. That's the first reason why I like this book. The second reason I like this book is a massively geeky reason, and I don't expect any of you to share it with me. Um, if you do, let's join a geek club together. Um, but basically, Paul is writing this book, and Paul is a Jewish man. And often when you read some of Paul's letters, he, he's kind of steeped in the Old Testament of all kind of the Jewish imagery and literature. But actually, um, this church is not quite as Jewish as his other churches. So what you see happen is what I call a whoopsie-daisy moment. So if anyone of you has seen um, Notting Hill, um, Hugh Grant just can't help but be British, can he? So it just kind of pops out like a whoopsie-daisy. And you see that with Paul, it's like he can't help but be Jewish. So you occasionally see in these moments there's like a, a whoopsie-daisy. Oh, there's a little bit of Judaism for you. And then, um, but then he's also trying to understand like how it fits into this Greek culture. So I just, I find it really interesting being to interpret. I told you it was geeky, fine. And finally, um, I love it because it's challenging in all the right ways. It is absolutely and profoundly focused on Jesus. Jesus is front and center of this book. And the whole letter hinges on the person of Jesus. And if Jesus isn't the son of God, if Jesus isn't who he said he was, if he didn't die and rise again, then this letter makes absolutely no sense. The whole structure, the whole uh, meaning of it, the whole, Paul's whole life actually falls apart. So what I wanted us to do this weekend is just, um, this evening, is just do some groundwork. And when you're reading a letter, it can be quite difficult if you don't know the author. But what I haven't also done is actually read the bit. So Adam, do you want to come read for me? <laughs> so what we're going to be looking at is Philippians 1 to 8. Um, and it should come up on screen. There it is. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart, whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how, long, how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Let's give him a round of applause. <clears throat> if you're good at reading, if you enjoy reading, come let me know. I've got a fair few bits of these. Um, so when you read a letter from somebody um, just randomly, it's, it doesn't really make sense unless you know the author, unless you know who they're kind of writing it to, and unless you know the context of what their relationship is. So this morning, what we're going to, this evening, sorry, we're going to be talking about is who is Paul, um, where is Philippi, and what is the origin story? What is their relationship? What's the relationship between Paul and this church in Philippi? Does that sound good? Lovely. Okay, so Paul, what we know about Paul is um, that he actually wrote most of the Old Testament, the kind of the second half of the Bible. We know Paul about Paul from the book of Acts, which is the, the first kind of the, the stories of the early church, just post-Jesus has died and risen again. And we, we catch up with Paul in there. We also see uh, Paul in 
his letters, we find out about him from his letters, but also there's historical accounts. So when we first hear about Paul, it's in Acts 8, and his name is Saul. And it's in this really dramatic moment where basically somebody called Stephen is being stoned to death. Because Stephen has been preaching that Jesus is the Messiah, he's the Son of God, that he's died and he's risen again. And Paul is watching this man die. He's watching his body be beaten with stones, be bruised, battered, crushed to death, bloody. And what he does is he looks at it and he approves of it. Now you think about that, that is dark, isn't it? Like he's watching a man die and he said, yes, that man should die. That is dark. So this is who is writing the letter. So you've got to imagine that actually we can't forget that Paul has gone through an incredible transformation. As we read this letter, it is full of love. It is full of joy and affection. And there's something about that is really hopeful for us, isn't it? It's like it doesn't matter how dark you think your heart is, how dark your past is. There is a possibility of transformation with Jesus. Because this man who looked at somebody dying and said, yes, I want to see them die, actually is now a man who is full of love and affection. Now, I um, became a Christian in part because I saw a really naff poster in the middle of Truro that said, Jesus in your heart, revolution in your life. And when I saw it, I used to laugh at it because I just thought that's ridiculous. The Jesus I know is not a revolutionary. He's incredibly boring. He's incredibly mundane. He's incredibly passive. And I got intrigued by this idea of this revolutionary Jesus. And revolution sounds pretty dramatic. I don't know if there's any Les Mis fans in the room, um, but I, you know, I've watched it. It looks dramatic. It's the, there's a battle, there's cost, and there's sacrifice. It's far from boring. So what Paul has undergone is a revolution. And his life has been anything but boring, but it has been costly and it has been sacrificial. He's gone from being someone who approves of an unjust killing to a man who speaks of love and joy. But there's been cost and there's sacrifice. And when he's writing this letter, he's writing this letter from prison. And we think he's writing it from prison in Rome. Because we know that because he says, um, I am in chains for Christ. I mean, that makes a pretty big clue, isn't it? But here's what we know about a first century prison in Rome. It would, you would have been sent to this prison and you basically would have been sent there to die. It would have been a dark and filthy place. The whole point of it was to strip you of your dignity and your humanity. It was to make sure that you mentally and physically suffered. It was torturous to prison prisoners. There wasn't individual cells. You would have been a communal space. You wouldn't have had many rations because it was expected that your family and friends, they would come to visit you and bring some food for you. So there's a very practical reason for this letter. Basically, what Paul is saying is, thank you for the food that you've brought me. Thank you for the care you've brought me. And this guy, Epaphroditus, um, who make, appears with a little cameo in chapter 2, um, he is the guy that's basically traveled a 1,000 miles from Philippi to come and bring the food, to bring the rations to Paul. And he's apparently nearly died in the process. So Paul, this man, who started out persecuting the church at the time of writing this letter, is looking and facing his own death. He's in a place of absolute desperation. And we need to hold this picture in our mind because when he starts to talk about joy, he talks about joy 19 times in this book. When you think about joy in that context, when he says rejoice, and again I say rejoice, we've got to hear it with different words. Because when you're speaking and writing those words from prison, in a place which is inhumane, stripping you of your dignity, and you're still able to say, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. 
you've got to ask the question, what the heck is this man's secret? How was he able to speak about joy in a place like that? So that is the author. And then we have um, Philippi. Um, now, my geography is terrible. I was terrible at geography at school. Um, but I thought I'd treat you to a little map. Now, it's going to be the blind leading the blind here. Um, but what we have is we have the Mediterranean Sea, lovely warm sea. Um, and what we've got on the left is we've got Italy. In the middle, um, we've got Greece. And then on the right, what we've got is modern day Turkey, unhelpfully called Asia. Um, and on the, on the kind of far right, just on the edge, there's a little like bit of Damascus. And that's where G um, Saul becomes Paul, where he basically meets Jesus on the road and has this dramatic conversion. And then on the right-hand side, and the left-hand side, sorry, you've got Rome. So what's happened in the intervening years is he's basically gone around this area and he has preached the gospel. And he's set up churches and he's kind of gone around. And it is, we read in Acts 16, that's when uh, he was in a place called Troas. Um, he has a dream that basically this man from Macedonia, which is the bit in the middle, is standing and begging, come and help us, come and help us. And that's uh, the bit which is kind of modern day Greece. He says, come and preach the gospel to us. And we'll hear a little bit of the story that happens there. But I want to talk to you about Philippi. I don't know if you can see it. It's just above the, how do you say that word, agency? A GNC, thank you very much. <laughs> Dyslexic. Um, Philippi was basically Rome away from Rome. It was like a mini Rome. It's a little colony. So the Roman Empire came and occupied all of this land and more. And what they would do is when they would come into the land, they would settle in the land. There were settlers. But, but in Philippi, it was a particular type of settlement. It was basically where the military heroes were sent. Now, if you're looking for the people who are like your most nationalistic, your most pride, kind of full of... Um, like love for the empire, you'll probably be looking at your military. So basically, Philippi was a place where they were sent and uh, they were given land as a reward for their battles. And they were veterans there, so they had been incredibly successful in battle. And they were sent there because they were being honored. Now, the word honor and shame is going to come up a lot this weekend, so much so you're probably going to get a little bit bored. It's hard to put into words just how important honor and shame were in this culture. It was the air that they breathed. And we're going to be returning to it again and again. But very briefly, I was talking about revolution earlier. What happened as the empire came and, and had their own revolution, when they took over the land, what they would do is they would come into the land. So they would come into somewhere like Philippi. And they would establish their empire through conquest, through oppression. So in basically other words, they would have peace through war. They would have security through domination. They moved people out and they conquered. They imposed taxes, taxes and tributes just to maintain the empire. Basically, they had peace through oppression. There was a really dark side to the Roman Empire. And if you were in Philippi and you had no power, and which was the, the case for most of the people who lived there. It was an incredibly hard place to live. And the only way you got up in the world was to receive honor, to gain honor through different means. And we'll talk about that tomorrow. So that's Philippi. So we've had our author. We know where the letter is going. But we don't know much about the relationship between the author and the church. So let's talk about how this church 
starts, let's um, talk about origin stories. Now, I love an origin story. Um, Adam will love an origin story because superheroes are obsessed with origin stories. Um, you're the, not that you're the superhero, but you are a type of superhero. You are a superhero. <laughs> um, but I love hearing like how couples met. Um, my mum and dad, my dad saw my mum walking down the corridor and said, that's the woman I'm going to marry. Lovely. Now, um, I've started dating someone. Um, he's coming to Murray, get to meet him, very nice. Um, our origin story is terrible, and I mean terrible. Um, we first went on a date five years ago, and uh, it was a double date with mutual friends who basically convinced, um, we'd been at social gatherings together, I have to admit, I, I couldn't remember him, um, strike number one, and um, he, he basically uh, invited me to a Tom O'Dell gig, which is, you know, anyone loves Tom O'Dell, fantastic. It was a complete an utter disaster. Um, we went for dinner beforehand, and um, he barely spoke to me. I was like, I am giving this guy, like, I am so witty right now. I am full of charm. I'm giving this guy the full Anna experience, and I'm getting absolutely nothing back. So I decided, rather than talk to him, I talked to, to our friends instead. And when we got into the gig, I sat on the opposite side of him. He sat on the end, and I sat on the other side of him. Now, if you talk to him, he'll tell you a different story. He will say that he recognized that we hadn't had much of a chance to chat over dinner because he was sat talking to three incredibly loud people. And at the gig, I hadn't sat near him, so he decided to be a gentleman and walk me to the tube and um, get on the tube with me and then stay on the tube an extra five stops just so he could talk to me, very sweet. However, by this point, like I'm gone. I am totally, I'm like, what is this guy doing? I know his stop was back there. Like, will he just leave me alone? <laughs> so I get off the tube and I see a friend and I basically run at her and then just throw him this like dismissive wave <laughs> in the back. He says he thinks about that dismissive wave a lot. Neither of us covered ourselves in glory in that moment. It's a terrible origin story. Until last year, July, we basically ignored each other in any party that we were at together. Though actually, I would make, try and make eye contact with him Nothing. He just saw the wave. Anyway, origin stories. The origin story of Paul and um, the, Phil the Philippians relationship comes in Macedonia. You can read it in, in Acts 16 if you don't believe me. But basically, when Paul arrives in a place, when Paul comes to any of these places and where he's been church planting, what he does, he does four things. He basically goes to the city, the place of power. He finds a synagogue, people that know something about, about God. He preaches the gospel, and then he starts a church. So he does that in this, in this account. He basically goes to the city. He goes to um, uh, uh, Philippi because it's kind of the principal place in Macedonia. But he doesn't go to the synagogue. And the reason he doesn't go to the synagogue is because there's actually not many Jews there at all. Instead, he goes out of the city, and he finds a place of prayer. And when he's there, he, he comes across um, this woman, and her name is Lydia. Now, he comes across three people, and these three, these three stories are kind of like the founding story, the origin story of this church in Philippi. Lydia, a fortune teller, and a jailer. Now, we're going to touch on all of them, but Lydia was basically this woman at the woman at this kind of place of prayer. And uh, she's a new character. She's um, a wealthy businesswoman. She deals in purple cloth, fancy. 
she was a woman of prominence, and it calls her a worshipper of God, which basically means she probably wasn't Jewish, but she didn't believe in all the many gods that the Romans believed in, so she probably believed in one God. And when, it, um, and when Paul preaches the gospel to her, it says the Lord opened her heart to her res- to, in response to Paul's message, and she's baptized along with her whole household, and they eat together. So first of all, the story of Lydia, a woman who had power and prominence in the, the town. Anyway, then, then Paul, it seems, in, uh, in the chapter, kind of makes a ha- habit of going to this place of prayer. And it says, once we were going to this place of prayer in Philippi, and we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. Now, this woman basically had a, was, was trapped in two ways, spiritually, spiritually oppressed, but she was also enslaved by people who were making money off her, who were basically using her to, to go and um, kind of speak the f- people's fortunes over them and make money off her. So she's oppressed in two ways. And she's basically hanging around Paul in this quite annoying way. And um, though actually, I personally think like it'd be quite helpful having a foghorn behind you, because she says, these men are servants of the Most High God. They're telling the way in which to be saved. It's almost like an advert. Anyway, but Paul um, gets annoyed with it, partly because she's oppressed, she's trapped. She's trapped by a spirit, and she's trapped by these people. So his way of dealing with it, having put up with it for many days, he gets frustrated, he turns around, he casts the spirit out. And it's just exactly the same sort of thing that we see in the Gospels. Jesus doing that on the regular basis, setting people free from spiritual oppression. It's a classic kind of sign and wonder of the kingdom. And this woman is freed from this evil spirit. But the problem is, she's now not profitable to the people that have enslaved her. So instead of being thankful, what they do is they they drag Paul and Silas into the marketplace to face the authorities. Here's a picture of the forum. And they're causing uproar because they've taken away their their way of making money. And they strip them, and they beat them, and they throw them in prison. So Paul and Silas are thrown in prison for setting this fortune teller free, which leads us into, nicely, our third character, the jailer. So Paul and um, Silas end up in prison. And here's a picture of the prison. And they're in their their cell. They're bound, and they're fastened. And it says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Again, we see this man like in a desperate situation. And what's he doing? He's praying and singing hymns to God. So let's recap this story of what we know so far. Paul's had a dream. Come to Macedonia. Come over and preach the gospel to us. Paul has responded to that dream. He's met a woman at a place of prayer. She's become a Christian. He set someone free, and now he finds himself in prison. You kind of start to think, gosh, is this a failure? What the heck is going on? So their response is, they are going to pray and they're going to worship. And what happens is not what you expect. As they're in this cell praying and worshiping, suddenly, suddenly there's an earthquake, and the the doors fling open, and the jailer, our third character, he sees, he's been asleep and he sees that the, the, the prison has been thrown open. He's terrified, he's absolutely terrified of the shame, here's that word again, the shame of setting, the meaning that these prisoners have probably run free. And he almost takes his sword to kill himself. And Paul has to say, no, 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 stop, stop, don't worry, we're still here. And the jailer is overwhelmed and by the spirit 
And he says, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Right in the middle of the night, he takes them home. He washes them. He cooks for them a meal. And he's baptized along with his whole family. It's an amazing story. And after they get out of there, they then go back. Um, they came out of prison, went to Lydia's house. They met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. That's the backstory of the Philippians. What a story of twists and turns and miracles. Like whenever you start something new, as I'm starting at um, St. Gregory's, you kind of like that, that moment of like gathering the people, those foundation stories, those, that DNA, as, as Ian C. would have met in Joanna McLoon's house in those early days, like those are big moments. Like you're looking around, who's in the room? Who's, who's carrying the DNA of this church? And the DNA of the church in Philippi is a wealthy businesswoman, a woman who used to hang around with them um, telling the future and a sleepy suicidal jailer. What a team, what a planting team. But it's a story where the unexpected happens, when the unlikely things happen. And Paul says, like, he who began a good work in you, that was a good work. That was a good work for you, Lydia. That was a good work to that woman who was um, enslaved by the spirit. That was a good work for the jailer. He who has began that good work, he's going to bring it on to completion. These are founding stories of miracles, miracle, a story against the odd of God at work, a story of revolution. Again, like Rome, right in the seat of power, he is disrupting the power structures. It's a story of freedom. And the reason that they're so concerned about Paul in prison is because they're so thankful to them to him. They're so thankful for this message. There's deep affection that the Philippians have for Paul because they're thankful for the message of hope that he brought them. But there's also, they are facing their own suffering because they are swimming against the tide of an empire that wants to crush and subdue them. They are facing their own persecution. And they're concerned about Paul because he's in this prison, in this dark prison, basically facing death. It looks like a very hopeless situation. And yet, and yet, this letter is full of life. This letter is full of hope. This letter is full of joy. Philippians 1.18 says, And yes, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ has happened to me will turn what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And this is the crucial bit. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's one of my favorite lines in the whole Bible. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What a statement. Whether I die, great, I'm going to be with Jesus. If I live, I'm going to live for Jesus. There is something so confronting about that. And I think that is what this weekend is about. It is allowing this letter and these people to confront us, to allow Jesus to confront us, to allow the church in Philippi to challenge us, that they were people who were living their lives in a way that if Jesus didn't exist, then their lives wouldn't make sense. Paul was living his life in a way that if, if Jesus wasn't the son of God, if he hadn't died and risen again, then he's a man to be pitied, he's a fool. But actually, if he is who he says he is, my goodness, 
Paul is one of the most free men on the planet. Paul is basically saying there's only one way to live. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Center your life around the person of Jesus. And all of us center our lives on something. All of us. It's never, um, in, it's, there is no neutral thing that we center our lives on. It could be work, it could be relationships, it could be family, it could be ambition, it could be dreams, it could be comfort, it could be addiction, it could be the need to be loved. Whatever it is, we center our lives around something. Our actions, our thinking, our affections go towards that thing. And what we see in this book is Paul is saying, Give your life to Jesus. Center your life on the person of Jesus. This whole letter is about Jesus. And you'll be here tonight because you've got your own origin story. It might be dramatic like Paul's was. It might be like Timothy and somebody shared the faith with, with you as from your, a member of your family. It might be that you were like Lydia, just going along your daily life and then someone told you about Jesus. Whatever it is, you're here with your own origin story. And if you've never been on a weekend away like this before, um, I want to tell you that they're not magic. They're not particularly special. But I do want to raise your expectations that God does tend to do things on in times like this. And part of the reason is it's just because we give them space. It's just because we say, I'm just going to take some time out. I'm going to push those distractions to the side. Actually, do you know what? I've got someone else looking after my kids. I've got somebody else making my food. I've got someone else thinking about what I'm going to be doing with my day-to-day. -day. I can actually just focus on this. I can actually just have the space here, the busyness of life. I'm going to turn my emails off. I'm just going to come before Jesus. And do you know what? The invitation is this weekend is to let him look at you. Let the God of the universe look at you. Take the time to let him gaze upon you, to look at you and ask you that question of like, who is the center of your life? What are you living for? Take it as a moment of just assessing like, what is my purpose? What am I centering my affections on? Who am I living for? Is it Jesus or is it something else? And there's something about looking into the eyes of someone and you know, when you're dating, it's like, you do it quite a lot. And um, it's very awkward and disgusting, really. But, and, I'm, and when we're looking at each other, I'm, I'm always the one that looks away first. And do you know what? I dare you not to look away. I dare you to say, actually, do you know what? I'm going to push into intimacy with Jesus this weekend. I'm not going to look away, however uncomfortable it feels, however confronting it feels. I'm not going to look away from you this weekend, Jesus. Don't be scared. Don't be scared of him. He's so kind. He's so full of love. He's so full of mercy. He's so full of grace. There is no one like Jesus. There's no one who's going to look at you with the affection that Jesus looks at you. There's no one who's going to look at you with the grace and the mercy in which Jesus looks at you. There is no one, there is no one who will look at you and know you so completely and yet love you so much. There is no one like him. Take the space this weekend. I dare you. I dare you don't look away. So why don't we do that? I'm going to do a John Soper. So um, why don't we stand? <laughs> Thank you. Why don't we stand? Let's just allow God to do just that.